Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, last week I had, uh, I think I mentioned last week that I had made up my mind. I've looked at enough of these verses that people use against the teaching of eternal life, eternal security, they call it. And I, I had decided not to look at any more, and then the Lord let me know that uh, that wasn't what he had in mind. And so we're continuing. And last week we embarked on a consideration of some passages that can be difficult to understand, even if you are someone who truly does grasp and see and lay hold of and cling to the reality that once you've accepted God's gift of eternal life, it's eternal. Uh, some passages are difficult to understand, and that's the way it's supposed to be. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the honor of kings to search out a matter. Uh, we were looking at John 15, verses 1 through 6, and I didn't quite get finished up with my comments. So I'll begin by reading that passage again. The words of Jesus, of course, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean. You've been saved. You've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, cleansed by the Spirit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you, the word they had believed. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned." Um, as we stopped, before we stopped last week, I was talking about what it means to abide in Christ, abide in me. And I pointed out John 8, 31, where Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. If you abide in my word, you are my followers. If you abide in my word, you are the learners who sit at my feet. We then looked at John 1, verse 1, and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus is the living Word. The scriptures are the written Word inspired by the Holy Spirit. He told the Jews, some of the Jews, he said, uh, he said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have salvation. But they are they that bear witness of me. So abiding in the word isn't simply about knowing the Bible. You can be a part of a system of religion that absolutely does not teach the reality, the simplicity of salvation that in fact puts barriers in the way of truly accepting Christ as Savior. And you can know a lot of the scripture. That doesn't mean you know what the scripture is about. And so abiding in the word is really an abiding in Christ. 
If you're abiding in the word in the true sense, you're abiding in Christ. If you're abiding in the word as the reality that it is a revelation of who he is, of what he has done, of the purposes that he has established for his people, of the plan he has for us, that he is the way, the truth, the life. If you're abiding in the reality of what the scripture is, I can say with absolute confidence you're abiding in Christ and there is a place of fruitfulness there for you. But to finish up with that passage, let's consider what Jesus meant. uh, I think it was in verse 6. I'm not sure. Anyway, when he said, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch. This is where it gets kind of hard to understand for some. And is withered. It gets worse. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, something I said repeatedly last week is that in that passage, Jesus was not speaking about an opportunity to receive eternal life. He certainly was not speaking about the uh, possibility of losing the gift of eternal life that he has given to us. As I have said over and over and over, and as I tell different people, you know, eternal means something. The words mean something. Eternal life everlasting righteousness, eternal salvation, eternal redemption, if they're, if, if they're fragile, if they're temporary, if they're likely to go away, then by definition they wouldn't be eternal. So there's no way that Jesus was talking about somebody possibly losing that salvation, that eternal life. He was talking about fruitfulness or the lack of fruitfulness. And the work of the Father as he maintains the fruitfulness of his vineyard. And in that context, that's how we examine the statements of Jesus Christ. Um, It says, he said that they would be cast out. Now, I want you to notice that he did not say, I will cast them out. He said elsewhere, (laughs) under no circumstances, in no way, I'm not going to cast you out. But the Bible gives to us some very clear instructions about saved people, and sometimes just people who claim to be saved. If they're called a brother or called a sister in Christ, then certain things apply. It gives us very clear instructions about people who choose to cross certain lines, begin to walk according to the, the, just the paths of the world, the habits of the world, the practices of the world, uh, according to the flesh. There are certain lines that if we cross in this life, there are consequences. In 1 Corinthians, one of those passages, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 2, and then verse 11, and verse 13, the beginning of verse 13, Paul wrote, and you are puffed up. Now, sometimes, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but sometimes people see judgment exercised and they insist that those who exercise judgment are arrogant, that they feel like they're above others. In other words, that they are puffed up. Paul said to these people who were apparently refusing to exercise judgment when open sin was manifested, you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. But now I have written to you not 
to keep company with anyone named or called a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Now, in a very real and a practical sense, we're not talking about picking somebody up and throwing them over a cliff. But you can see that there is a pushing out. There's a casting out. Uh, we'll say more about that. We'll look at more about that in a moment. But in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle. Now, this broadens it out a bit from some of those big ones, you know, those gross sins that everybody looks at and says, oh, yeah, I can see that that's wrong. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with that person that he may be ashamed. That is that they may recognize I'm doing wrong things and there's a consequence and I need to deal with this. I'm ashamed of what I've done. Again, do you see that there is a casting out, a casting out from fellowship? That's a tragic thing. To me, one of the most difficult things of being a pastor or just of being a Christian who walks according to the word of God is those times when you have to break fellowship with someone you love. Uh, There were a few times as pastor when I would say something like this to to a person. If you will not deal with this privately... The word of God gives me no alternative. I have to deal with it publicly if you continue in the assembly. In each of those cases, they chose not to continue in the assembly. And what was going on? I was was gently saying to you, to them, you don't belong here, not in this spiritual condition. And it is not arrogance to do that. Some people say, well, I just don't feel, you know, I'm just not... Yeah, I have my problems too. Okay, deal with your problems. For goodness sake, if the Lord has let you know you have issues you need to deal with, deal with those problems. Oh, I just can't do this because, you know, if God says to do it, then you have another problem. Then you have another issue that you're not dealing with in your life. Which is more arrogant to say, oh, I'm so humble I can't obey God. When God says, don't keep company, don't even eat with that person. Or to say, I recognize that I am no better than anyone. But God has spoken his judgment. And it's not mine to rejudge or reassess. And I have no options but to obey my heavenly father. Which is more humble? Which is arrogant? And I think submitting to God is the humble thing. And what is a, uh, an act of saying to someone or acting in a way that, you know, the result's going to be they realize the fellowship is gone? Really? Well, let me back up. You know, in, in the Catholic Church, they have excommunication. And Martin Luther, I think they excommunicated him maybe more than once. They wanted to kill him, but... He said, the Pope can't excommunicate someone who hasn't already excommunicated themselves. You know, in reality, if we recognize that we can't have fellowship with someone, it is simply a recognition that that person has already decided, 
I'm not going to walk, I'm not going to live my life in such a way that I can have true and deep fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a decision, oh, I know you're in fellowship and I know everything is good, but we're going to cast you out. It's a recognition. You've made a decision. You've already walked. You're already really in your heart, in your life, in your habits, in your practice, in your attitude. You're already out of the door for true fellowship. And whatever your reasons for being here are, you've removed yourself from fellowship and the things of the Lord, and we acknowledge that. And it's a difficult thing. It's a painful thing. It's a sad thing. Now, the one thing that you have to keep in mind, because we don't want to be that arrogant, self-righteous, hypercritical Pharisee who finds fault in everyone else and pretends that we're without fault, And so we are never to treat such folks as our enemies. That's what the painful thing is. You love those people. You care deeply about those people. You want the best for those people. And yet God has spoken. And however much it hurts my feelings, my feelings are not the issue. My faith is the issue. And I believe God's word. So we never treat such people as if they are our enemies. I I read... uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.14, let's uh, read the whole passage, two verses. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 and 15, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish, warn, plead, exhort. It's not just, I'm never going to talk to you again, you're gone. It's a brother. It's a sister. Admonish him as a brother. You see, God's purpose toward his people, if they stray, and our purpose in a situation, if somebody is straying, is always to restore that person to fellowship, if at all possible. Uh, when, When Paul instructed the Corinthians, and again, I think I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes, but whether I am or not, when... Paul instructed the Corinthians to deal with the brother who was refusing to repent. They did as he told them to. And eventually the brother repented. Now that is the outcome that we should always, always, always desire. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, there are no limits here. Whatever that sin might be. Oh, that person has done this. I, I preached on uh, David's great sin, that great failure. His heart was right with God except in that matter. And a woman said to me afterwards, she was not a regular part of our con- congregation. She had visited a few times and she said, I just can't forgive David for that. And I thought, hmm, God did. There aren't limits here. I have said about people who got deeply involved in corruption, immorality, men who stood as leaders but chose to harm people instead of be a blessing to them in some ways. I said I would stand in line to hug their neck if they'd repent. You see, if, it, if a man be take, overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness or meekness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. See, that's what we, we always should know. 
I am no better than anyone else. If they have failed, there's no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. I could be tempted. I could fail. I'm human. I have the nature of the flesh. I have that old creation still side by side in my existence here. And so I need to consider myself in those situations. I will point out it says you who are spiritual. Babes in Christ, those who haven't grown into maturity, should not endeavor to involve themselves in things that are beyond their capacity. And I have seen people try to instruct others when they needed a lot of instruction themselves. I'm not ever going to say that the Spirit can't lead a child to speak. He certainly led Samuel to speak. And in those words, there was some severe chastening of which God warned uh, Eli. But however that may be, again, to obey God is humility. To refuse to obey God is to be puffed up against his uh, instruction. But nevertheless, backing up, what we see is a removal of casting out from fellowship with the body of Christ. And, and it's something that's painful, but it, that's not the intention. The intention is restoration. But there has to be a dealing with the sin for that to take place. And so as, uh, as we acknowledge a person's decision, and again, I'm sort of reiterating, but as we acknowledge that decision to leave off true fellowship with the Lord, with the will of God, with the word of God, we also acknowledge that God has expressed his judgment, and we agree with him. And I have watched the lives of too many who have walked away from godly faithfulness. And, and again, as a pastor, I saw other pastors who just, they didn't just fail. They crashed and burned. And I could name names, and some of them you would know, and some of you would know, and some of them none of you would know. But what I've seen is when they walked away from that godly faithfulness, their lives began to dry up. Um, their character changed. I mean, the outward manifestation changed. Uh, their lives became just kind of a travesty. And uh, even their fellowship, their testimony, even their personal life at times dried up and ceased to show forth anything of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose fellowship they chose to reject. Uh, to affirm that that, and I believe that is the drying up, that is the withering that's spoken of. If you don't walk, have you ever gone on a long vacation? I used to take three weeks always when I went on vacation because it took me a week to decompress, a week to ten days, and then I could begin enjoying it. But by the end of the three weeks of not being in a place of real close fellowship, I began to feel like I was drying up. You know what I mean? If you walk away from fellowship, you begin to wither. Uh, some, just to affirm that I'm not twisting the scripture, uh, I'm going to give you a couple of verses that uh, use that same Greek word translated wither. In Mark 3, verses 1 through 3, speaking of Jesus, it says, He entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. Well, I have more of it up there, but he had a withered hand. Um, doesn't mean that it was dead. It hadn't fallen off onto the ground, and you'd look down and say, Whoa, <laughs> 
That fell off his arm, and it's all dried up now because it's dead. No, it was uh, without function. It was without strength. It was very likely twisted and emaciated. It was withered. Still existing. Still alive, but non-functional. In Mark 9, 18, the beginning of the verse, it's a, a young man whose father came to Jesus. The young man uh, was possessed of an evil spirit. And he said, wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. That, that phrase, becomes rigid, is the same word, withered. Again, remember the context. Um, it, it has other uses. That, that, that word can be used in the literal sense of a plant dying and withering, uh, a drying up. But in the context of John 15, we're looking at a figurative imagery and the reality that eternal life is eternal forbids us from using the more deadly interpretation of the word. He became rigid. Again, not the end of his life. He lost control. Uh, he lost function. He lost the ability to react to his surroundings. And this is what happens spiritually when people walk away from fellowship with the Lord. Their life begins to go off the rails in some way. Maybe it's, you know, maybe there is a, still a certain level of what other people would call normalcy. And I'm not going to give any examples, but I've just seen it happen. Their lives wither. And then those words, they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Boy, if I was preaching against re the reality of eternal life, I would pick this up and I would run with it. But it doesn't work. You can't pit one scripture against another. Again, the, the purpose of this judgment is to restore, to admonish, to warn, to give opportunity for repentance. It's not just, okay, but you blow it, you are gone. You are toast. In fact, you are burnt toast. That, that's not really the point here. Um, I'm sure that most of you are aware that uh, fire is a, a symbol of God's purifying judgment. I'm getting ahead of myself there. It's a picture of God's purifying judgment. Um, Back up one more. Okay. Uh, and as you, as you look at what God is doing in the life of one who has rejected, who's being dealt with in some way, the point is, again, to purify, to cleanse, to bring back to fellowship. Uh, again, 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5. I think most of you are familiar with this. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the instruction Paul gave to the Corinthians when they were puffed up and would not rather grieve over this person, oh, we'll just show love. We will just enjoy this person because they are a child of God. They were puffed up against God's instruction. So his instruction was this, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, we should be in agreement in these things. We should all accept God's instruction in these things. When you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now again, why? That the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fire, 
righteous judgment, purification. We are to be as gold tried in the fire. God's judgment purifying us. The pruning is another picture. So that passage is probably as clear a picture as you're going to find in Scripture of a saved person facing those fires of judgment here in this life, in this body, whereby God is seeking to restore that person. Again, as I've said repeatedly, we need to compare Scripture with Scripture. We need to look at at, uh, context, and there is no condemnation pictured here in 1 Corinthians 5, nor in our passage in John 15. Let's move on to another difficult passage. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. Were these saved people? Of course, they'd accepted the message of God the message of Christ, and they stood in that place. By which also you are saved, and here comes the difficult part, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now there are layers here. There's more here that I'm going to get into. I just want to deal with a few key issues. First of all, a primary issue, the Greek word translated saved has a wide range of meanings. Among those meanings is that which we call salvation in the ordinary sense. Most of the time, if we're talking about salvation, we're generally talking about that time when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. The time when we receive the gift of eternal life, the gift of eternal salvation. Generally, when we say that the Lord saves somebody, that's what we're talking about, yes? But understand there can be a lot more involved. Again, the word translated saved and the word always used when we read about somebody being saved has more meanings than that event, that privilege when we receive eternal life and eternal salvation. Um, when we think of that, that, that word saved, it, it's important to realize the scope of what it includes. I took the time this past week and I looked at every single occurrence of the Greek word involved in the New Testament. Every place I saw it. Show of hands, how many of you have a Strong's Concordance or a Bible program or a Bible app that allows you to look up you know, Greek and Hebrew words in the text? Most of you, okay. I'm going to give you a homework assignment that you won't be tested on by me, but it would be worth your time to go through the Bible the way I did and look at all the occurrences of this word translated saved and see for yourself what I saw. Search the scriptures. See if what I'm saying is really so. Uh, Paul, well, the Greek word that Paul used, and it's rightly translated saved, it used, it's used elsewhere to speak of physical healing. It's used elsewhere to speak of being delivered from demon possession. It's used elsewhere to speak of being kept from drowning. It's used elsewhere to speak of being spared from death under persecution, of women not dying in childbirth. It's used to speak of Israel's liberation from the slavery they endured in Egypt and more. And that doesn't 
prove anything about this passage right off, but it, again, it's important to take the time to dig a little deeper, to realize, okay, you're saved if. I wonder what that means. We know already that once you've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ for the matter of eternal life, eternal salvation, eternal righteousness, you know, there is no more if. That's a done deal. And I would strongly suggest that you see the salvation of the Lord, the deliverance that he gives to you as his child as an ongoing work. I remember, some of you remember Brother David Cloud. Brother David Cloud was a different sort of individual. And he came to our assembly and he got up and he preached. And he lost half the congregation right away. I remember Brother Jim Gravitt was especially upset with him. He, uh, he stood up and he said, some people talk about once saved, always saved. I don't believe in once saved, always saved. And he went on to say some, a lot of truth, but boy, uh, he, he wound a few people up. That portion having to do with what we mean as when we usually speak of salvation, yeah, it, it's, a, it's once and done, one and done. But his delivering, his liberating, his perfecting work, his full manifesting of what salvation means is going to continue all through the course of your life. He wants you to live this salvation. He wants this salvation to change you, to change your thinking, to change your associations, to change your habits, to change everything about you, to under, help you understand the new creation means Old things have passed away. They're gone. I need to get rid of a lot. All things have become new. One passage that stands out especially to me in this matter of uh, your saved if is Hebrews 7 verses 24 and 25. But he, that is Christ, because he continues forever. He's talking about the old Levitical priesthood and the priest would die and then somebody else would have to take over. Because he continues forever, has an unchangeable, unchanging, continuous priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost, to the highest possibility, to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I'm a realtor. realtor. I'm a real estate broker. I'm a failure in the eyes of most realtors <laughs> because the book that was introduced to me when I first became a realtor was How to Become a Millionaire Realtor. Well, the Lord spoke to me years ago, literally, and said, you will never be a, a millionaire. He didn't say you'll never be a realtor. You'll never be a millionaire. Well, I wasn't going to go that route, and, uh, but I'm still a realtor going to retire my license very soon. So if you want to use me, call me quick. <laughs> but God doesn't want us to just sort of barely be Christians, barely be saved. He wants to load us down with all of the benefits, all of the blessings, all of the growth, all of the development, all of the reward, all of the usefulness, all of the fellowship that can be involved in the salvation 
that he gives and the living out of that salvation. And as we possess and particularly cling to the truths that are set forth in Paul's gospel, this full and finishing work of salvation will be completed. We will be saved to the uttermost. And I've heard people say, I'm just, I'm just going to be happy if I get in the door in heaven. Really? That's like your children saying, you know, if I'm just living and breathing, I don't care. Uh, God wants us to have his best. And how selfish is it to say, I don't care what he wants. I just want to barely get in. I'm going to be satisfied. If I just make it to heaven, that's all I really want. And it doesn't, I mean, they don't go ahead and say it. It doesn't matter what God wants to do for me. But then it says, unless you believed in vain. Again, don't, don't take this out of context and say, well, I'll just ask you a question. Is it possible to believe God in vain? No. His word doesn't return void. Is it possible to believe a politician in vain? Uh, I don't know if you know any con men or have ever dealt with a con man. Is it possible to believe with, you know, if it's too good to be true, it is all. You give me $10,000 and I'll give you a million by the end of the month. I got a bridge, I'll sell you, you know. Uh, Is it possible to believe a lot of what's on Facebook in vain? And I could go on. There can be a lot of useless, pointless, empty believing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. He who calls you is faithful, who will do it. If you believe God, he will do exactly as he promised and more because he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. And that's the fullness of salvation he wants to provide. And so in conclusion, the topic of that passage is being faithful, of continuing to recognize the importance of God's word and to realize and to lay hold of the opportunity that we have of embracing the entirety of his salvation, his purpose for salvation as we abide in his word. And to say it another way, Paul was writing about laying hold of the fullest blessings that is provided in this salvation that is already ours and not at all suggesting that we could possibly lose that eternal gift. And that is the conclusion of this morning's lesson.